There was a cancer researcher back in the 80s who described tumors as non-healing wounds. So it's, the fibroid is almost like a chronic wound. Welcome to Sex, Body, and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do, and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Our next guest is Dr. Jennifer Elisif. She is a professor and director of the Translational Tissue Engineering Center at John Hopkins. When I found out my good friend Jennifer, who we served together at the World Economic Forum as Young Global Leaders, was doing research into fibroids, I knew I had to have her on the show. She is an incredible researcher. She does amazing work at John Hopkins, and she happens to be a fibroid expert. So welcome to the show, Jennifer. Now, I never thought I would say this, but I'm actually excited to talk about my fibroid together with my dear friend. (laughs) Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Well, you are doing incredible work and you are a professor at John Hopkins and have been there 20 years? Almost 21 years. Wow. And you do really good work, especially on the research side. So you know everything there is to know about fibroids. And I know that you are working at a sort of cutting edge level on innovation. So Tell us a little bit about your job. What do you do and why do you do it? So being a professor at Johns Hopkins, I'm heavily focused on research. Well, that means that I'm advising PhD students, postdoctoral fellows, master's students on their research for their thesis. And so I spend a lot of my time actually fundraising. So submitting grants to NIH or the Department of Defense to help fund their PhDs. These students have stipends, they're working in the lab, spending a lot of money on, on the research. So it's educational, right? So helping people learn the scientific process, how to do research. Another piece is getting comfortable with the unknown. So if you think about education before, it's taking tests. Now we're trying to study and learn things that are new have not been discovered yet. And that's hard. Yeah. As you know, because when we caught up the other day, we did have a long discussion about fibroids. And I have had a long history of having a number of very large fibroids. And that's really what we're going to focus our discussion on today is really what is a fibroid? What are the risks of having fibroids? What makes it so uncomfortable? And full disclosure, my fibroid, I got fertility treatment. And whilst I got fertility treatment, my fibroid grew and grew and grew to the size of a cabbage. And when I obviously was pregnant, then the baby couldn't come out naturally because the fibroid was bigger than the baby. And it caused me to have a very uncomfortable pregnancy, a lot of pressure on my organs, a lot of just backache and extremely uncomfortable. So let's start by understanding what a fibroid is exactly. So first, I want to start with the premise that this is actually a new area of research. I started collaborating with gynecologist um, Dr. Jim Seegers. So I've been learning a lot about fibroids. And what we've been bringing to the table in understanding fibroids is, well, first of all, they're a benign tumor, right? But it's not the benign tumor that really causes all your trouble. It's the fibrosis around that tumor. What is fibrosis? It's like a scar. When you cut yourself, 
you have that scar tissue that forms. And so it's nice that your wound is closed, but it doesn't quite look the same as your normal tissue. So it has a lot of matrix and abnormal blood vessels. And so that leads to um, heavy bleeding. Um, that can be a real problem with fibroids. And the disability level associated with fibroids is huge. So my group has been bringing our engineering approaches to the, our gynecology collaborators to understand and really map what's going on in this fibroid with the ultimate goal of developing new treatments because the treatments just really are not adequate. Mm. So I understand that 60 to 65% of women develop fibroids by the age of 50. Yes, yes. I actually, the number that Jim gave me was greater than 70%. Wow. And it's 85% among African-American women. Yes. Yes, I understand that. Now, do we know why African-American communities are at higher risk of developing fibroids? No, we don't yet. And what's even more difficult with it is that they have more severe symptoms and they tend to get them earlier. So 25% of Black women will have them by the age of 25. So it's, it's, it happens younger and the symptoms are more severe. Mm. And is the reason that a fibroid grows during pregnancy, is it because of your hormones? Like what makes them grow so rapidly? Hormones can play definitely a big role. You've also got a lot of factors there that are telling your body to grow things, right? So, so you've got a lot of stimulation there to develop and grow. Mm -hmm. and, and the fibroid, I mentioned that it was a benign tumor that's surrounded by that fibrosis. There was a cancer researcher back in the 80s who described tumors as non-healing wounds. So it's, the fibroid is almost like a chronic wound. Mm, mm. Now, my doctor sends me every single year back into the clinic to get my, because I still have them. It was very interesting, actually, because I said to my gynecologist, you know, when you bring this baby into the world, can you just slice them off? And I actually had to have a, a C-section so it wasn't possible. So I still have all these fibroids and they get checked every year for cancer because these fibroids can become cancerous, right? Yes. If you think of the inflammation that's there, so that fibrosis and that essentially non-healing wound is a recipe where you can have cancer develop. So in general, we want to reduce inflammation in our body. And what are the symptoms of fibroids? I mean, I can talk about my symptoms, but what do you need to look out for? How do you know you have them? The big thing that will bring people in is heavy bleeding, pain, and oftentimes infertility. Mm -hmm. Those are the factors that bring people in to say, is there a problem? Yeah. I can also tell you, again, from having these personally, that bloating is a problem. And I think because mine are so big, they put pressure on my bladder. So I understand that they can put pressure on your bladder. They can also put pressure on your rectum. And, you know, your, your organs are all so close together. I think that's why my pregnancy was so painful. Yes, yes. And I think one thing that's important about getting together and talking about these symptoms is so that we don't normalize some of these things, that we don't normalize the heavy bleeding. And people will actually go in and, and say, there's something wrong. Can you check it out? Because diagnosis is not that difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just have to have a scan, right? Or can you see internally Correct. when you do an internal exam? An ultrasound is the best, you know, is the ultimate way to look for a fibroid. Yeah. And they actually measure mine every single time I go in and tell me if they've grown or not, because that's another dangerous sign, right? If your fibroids have grown. Now, 
when you say bleeding too much or, you know, you, your flow is too heavy, what's too heavy? Should you go and get checked out after a week of bleeding? What is too much blood? Oh, that's a great question. And I would actually prefer to leave that for the physicians since I'm not a um, MD physician. I'm, I'm the PhD basic science person. But, you know, bleeding in between your period is an important thing, particularly for perimenopausal, postmenopausal women. And I've actually read some stories of, of people who they would felt like they were going bankrupt buying tampons and pads and ruining mattresses. I mean, it just became there was incredible bleeding that they couldn't they couldn't manage daily life. So if it's impeding with your daily life, that's a start. Mm-hmm. And can fibroids lead to needing to have a hysterectomy? Well, that's the problem. So the primary treatment is surgical, right? They are removing some of the fibroids or just a hysterectomy. And I think as we bring more light to this and talk about it more, there's a real demand for non-surgical treatment right? We shouldn't just have to cut it out as a solution. So understanding why they develop, how they get there, and sort of what, uh, from the basic science side, what are the cells in there doing that are causing this essentially scar to grow and grow and grow? And if we can target and make some therapies that target those pathways, we can start developing treatments that are, are not just involving a scalpel and taking everything out. Yeah. And often you can have fibroids with no symptoms at all, right? So you don't even know you have them. Correct. And mm-hmm. they can also go away. So some people mm-hmm. have them develop and then they go away. And I also understand that they do start to reduce and go away when you go through menopause. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So ev- everything shrinks a little bit, right? So the ovaries are shrinking some and the uterus will shrink some with menopause. So you have less hormones, but then also the pathways of inflammation that are associated with normal menstruation are decreased. And I think those are contributing also to fibroid development. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, while fibroids won't kill you, they significantly impair your quality of life, right? But you were saying before that there are some major, major risks also, and you've uncovered some new research that has, that has indicated that. Tell, tell us a little bit about fibrosis and, and how all of that works. Yeah, so I'll I'll tell you how we got started in it. So 20 years ago, I actually started research in stem cells and how to rebuild tissues. And we had some clinical trials, including a clinical trial for new fillers for aesthetic and, and filling your wrinkles. And we sort of realized that the immune system was a critical component to your ability to repair. And um, this led us to trying to understand what does a map of cells look like in your body when you're repairing nicely versus when you're repairing in not a good way associated with scar formation. And can we use that information to redirect your healing? And one of the places that we started looking at this was fibrosis around breast implants. So there are 400,000 breast implants per year in the U.S., and 40% of those are for reconstruction. 400,000? Per year. Wow, that's a lot of, that's a lot of boobs. <laughs> that's a lot of boobs. Well, 40% of that is for reconstruction after breast cancer. Mm-hmm. About 60% are cosmetic related. But about 50% of people will have some scarring problems. 
and a fair amount of people eventually will need some type of revision surgery. And one of the reasons for that is scar formation. So that same scar or that same fibrosis that forms around that fibroid tumor is the same one that forms around the breast implants. So we've been trying to understand that and develop therapies to prevent it. And so even though we started out with that fibrosis around the breast implants, we're applying the same things we learned there to fibroids. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? Because, I mean, thank goodness there are professors and researchers like you that really stick to your guns and delve into this stuff because we don't know. You know, everyone's injecting their faces now with Botox and fillers. And, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about that too. (laughs) But the breast implants, which have been going on, gosh, I don't know, when did all that start? In the 60s, maybe? Is that when it started? Yeah. So the first implants were knee and hip implants. So those are the first ones that were tested and then breast implants came later. Wow. Incredible how society has pushed us to do those things to our body. And I'm not condoning anyone who wants to have breast implants. If it makes you feel better about yourself, I say, go for it, girl. But I don't like it when society starts to tell us how we should look and we're influenced in that way, especially if it's going to endanger your health. And I've heard about all these awful stories of women who had gotten breast implants when they were 18, 19, and now they're in their 40s and have you know developed terrible infections and, as you say, scar tissue. But can you tell us a little bit more about how that happens, and then what are the risks of that with this scar tissue? Because you're essentially saying that the fibroid and the breast implant scar tissue have the same kind of risks and are the same process. Yeah, so there's some processes of that scarring and fibrosis that's similar, and of course, there's some differences in in different places of the body. The way I like to look at it, since I'm new to the immunology field, and I think of it just more what makes sense is that your body has a wound from the surgery, so your immune system is going to come in and make sure everything's okay and clean up the mess that's made and help rebuild the tissue. And the immune system sees something there, and it can't get rid of it, okay, but okay, it's not terrible, right? It's not, it's not a terrible infection that um, we really need to work hard to get rid of. So we're just going to wall it off. So actually, some of the cells that were discovered in the context of tuberculosis and walling off tuberculosis in the lung are the same ones that we see for walling off, right? So the body says, okay, we're going to play it safe and just wall off this implant or wall off that tumor, right, with that scar, but we leave some immune sentinels, like some guards there. So just in case we're keeping a little eye on it, right? So it's like this low level chronic inflammation. And then what we've seen in the case of adverse events for fillers is that when somebody has an infection or you know, somehow is sick in the other parts of their body, all of a sudden those sentries that were taking, keeping guard in that scar, they wake up and start having an immune response. So that's how I like to envision it. So the body walls it off. And depending how good that your body is at walling that off will determine how much scar you have. And you probably want a little bit of scar, right? So your immune system is is not continuing to react against this unknown thing that is in the body, but you don't want too much. So it's this balance of you need some walling off, but not going overboard. You see these uh, shows like Botched, you know, where people have had 
botched plastic surgery. And, you know, they come in and their breasts are completely disformed. I often wondered why that was, you know, what, like how did that happen? But it's very common, I think. It's very common. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, I obviously in my industry, I've worked with a lot of hospitals and a lot of universities. And I often wonder, you know, I imagine everyone standing around in white coats, you know, looking in their test tubes and being in the lab. And but how does it really work, right? You've got a whole team of people. Talk us through. So paint the picture of how the university and the hospital really works to uncover the research that's necessary. And then what happens to that research? So you're not too far off with the lab coats and the test tubes, but you know we've got an army in the laboratory that's working hard. And a lot of these techniques are quite challenging. So it takes, it takes a while for a student to learn how to do these analyses. And there's a lot of trial and error and a lot of failure, a lot of unknown, and that takes a lot of our energy. But a key part of this is collaborations with experts in different fields and sharing data, sharing results. And we publish in journals and publish papers, give lectures. But, you know, what really is the most meaningful for us and I think the most inspiring, too, for for students and their projects is seeing the impact that we'll have in, in people. So I'm a biomedical engineer, so I don't want to stop just at the discovery, right? I want to develop a therapy that will make a difference in people. So I think that's really a key part of what inspires people, both me and um, students. And so some of the students will graduate and want to be professors too, and others will actually go work in industry where they're directly working on products for new things. And I think women's health has been ignored for a long time. So I think it's really exciting and I would almost say there's a lot of low-hanging fruit because it hasn't been studied very carefully. And well, there are some great researchers in women's health, just not enough, right? We need more researchers in women's health, more funding going to women's health. And then those discoveries will, will enable new therapies. Having these conversations is important for people to realize that maybe there's something that can improve my quality of life if I have something like a fibroid. Well, first of all, I'm thrilled that you've joined the Body Agency's advisory board. And, you know, this is what we believe in. We believe in getting the latest information and research and then making sure that people have access to that information, products and services that they need. And with fibroids, you know, you and I were chatting about this. There's so many taboo issues that we are still not comfortable talking about, whether it's fibroids or heavy periods or even just getting your period or talking to your kids about periods and menopause and sexual pleasure or that lack thereof. There's just so much stuff. And I want to understand you know, I, I know you, we've known each other a very long time. We serve as young global leaders together at the World Economic Forum. And I know that you are an introvert and you don't do a lot of podcasts and you have to be out there fundraising nonstop. Now, is that a pain point for you? Like what is going to make your work easier? Because it just doesn't seem right to me that somebody as technical as you who does such a good job of doing the work has to use your time fundraising, right? Because you have to raise the money to do your work. 
Yeah, actually, just this morning, the reason I'm working in my home office today is I was writing and I was working on a grant on fibroids. <laughs> so we submit grants to NIH and there's a peer review process and um, the competition and the funding rate is incredibly low. So we end up writing more conservative grants. It's easier to get those funded. And so being able to go after new ideas, you know, I hadn't worked in fibroids before. So this is a new area of research and it's really hard to get funding then when you're chain- shifting directions. So we spend too much time writing grants and revising and resubmitting grants and less time actually doing the science and less time working you know, in the laboratory with the students, with the fellows, working on product development, translation. So having the freedom to be able to explore new ideas new things like fibroids and making that connection between fibrosis around breast implants and fibroids. It takes a lot. And also we're training the next generation with it too. So there are a lot of important key key topics to it. So fundraising is absolutely a pain point for us. We just keep chugging along and doing the best we can. And where does the money come from? Which types of organizations fund your research? So we get a a variety of funding from the National Institutes of Health, so federal grants. I actually have a history of getting funding from the Department of Defense, and a lot of people don't realize the medical advances that came from the Department of Defense. It's really incredible. So our studies on regenerating tissues and repairing is very relevant for military veterans and the warfighters. So And what's nice about the Department of Defense funding is that it's very translationally oriented. They want a product and they want to fund sort of down that pathway to getting a product. We also get funding from companies and that'll be for very specific sort of product related applications and then foundations. And, you know, I I was lucky in 2019 to get this um, NIH Pioneer Grant, which is for high risk, high reward research. So exactly what I was just talking about, going into new areas. And I was just thinking this morning how you know, that was supposed to be my time to really explore, you know, new areas and how it was really taken up by COVID, right? And really focusing and and keeping things running during the pandemic. So I just realized I need to enjoy that high risk, high reward time. And actually that funding has been important in helping us move towards women's health. And would you say also a pain point is sharing, disseminating the results and the information to make sure that that key research gets into the hands, as you say, of partners who can really use it and take it to the next level. Absolutely. So finding you know, the right pathway, do you work with a company that already exists and help them develop a product? Or do you start a company and you know, start from scratch and build something new? So you know, getting it forward and is, is really critical. And you know, I, I have to point out some of the numbers of venture funding and uh, for, for women entrepreneurs is, is not so great. And it would be great to see that improve. And I think that would help potentially developing more for women's health issues. I was chatting to a number of Silicon Valley VCs over the weekend. We were all at a party together and we were talking about this. Only 2% of women entrepreneurs in general get funded And then femtech, which this essentially falls under, is even lower. And, you know, why is that? Because we know that women entrepreneurs, women business people deliver. We deliver. You know, we really deliver, but we just can't get the funding. We can't get the funding. (laughs) So there's there's a problem there that needs needs to change. 
Absolutely. And Sangeeta Batia, a classmate from graduate school who's been at MIT for a while, has just done incredible work in that space. And one of the stories that she tells that just really hits you in the gut is, you know, being told that she needed to bring a male graduate yeah. student yeah. in order to have some credibility. Yeah. <laughs> Here she is, I this know. incredibly accomplished professor, you know, know, decades being a professor and has to bring a male graduate student to have credibility in the venture group. And it just it blows my mind because, as you say, the women will overproduce almost, right? Undersell and over, you know, overproduce. So, if anything, it's a good bet. But I think it's also because most of the money is still coming from men, right? So, what we know, I mean, I've done this myself with pitching for the body agency and getting funded that when you're pitching to men and you've got men there at the pitch, they're going to look at each other and not at you, even though you you have the idea, you're driving this. I mean, it's just the system is really messed up. Now to get back to fibroids for a second, what's your end game? What world do you want to see when you're done? Our end game, which I totally believe is feasible, is a simple therapy that somebody can put in just directly locally in the uterus and to treat and shrink the fibroid. No surgery, no scalpel, yeah, why don't we have that? That is just crazy to me. Yeah. So that's my dream. And I think I think we can do it. Yeah, I believe in you. Do we not use laser now? Is it not removed by laser? There is some laser that can be done, but I think that's just, again, sort of a surgical option. Yes, it's more minimally invasive and less pain with the surgery and all of that, but you're still, that's another version of a scalpel. It's not addressing the underlying problem. So I'd like to see a therapy that maybe a combination, right? That you shrink the fibroid a lot and then you can remove it easily. And how many years away do you think you are from that? I mean, I think we can have a mechanism figured out with these new approaches that we're taking now in a few years. And um, once you have that, you can develop a therapy and, you know, then you do have to go through the FDA process and clinical testing. So I would say in five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. Well, the body agency will be the place for you to market it and get it out there. So we'll, we'll wait for you, help you to raise some money to do this work. Tell us in, in closing, because we're running out of time. So you've been doing this for 21 years. Tell us your best experience on a piece of research that you've done and where it went and what the end game actually was, just so we understand how the system works there. Well, what I love to do is to put new things together that haven't been put together before, right? So that's where I find the greatest excitement and joy in addition to the translation process. So, yeah, we were working on stem cells for 10 years and stem cells was going to be our cure-all to build new tissues. And after working on it, yeah, stem cells are interesting and they are important, but here's a new pathway of the immune system. And I had to learn something totally new. So I love learning and I love putting different things together. We're now working with a lot of computational people. And what that leads to is discovery and that discovery process. And then you see a large number of people then moving to that area, right? And recognizing that this is, this is actually really important in the future. So that is what I think is really exciting. And then the translation process is a whole sort of another story. So stem cell recovery and so stem cells in general were hot, 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 and still are, right? Tell us what that is. Like, wh how does it work? Because I think a lot of us have knowledge about 
stem cells and we're, we're like, we equate a miracle to stem cells and, you know, collect your baby's, you know, parts so that they can have stem cell therapy later on in life if they have some life-threatening disease. But just give us the basics on stem cells and how, why is it such a miracle? Well, so a stem cell, particularly the controversial embryonic stem cells, were exciting for people because they can become any type of tissue, right? So you have the cell that can divide a lot and you can have sort of an endless supply of them. And then they could become anything in your body, a skin cell, a heart cell, a muscle cell, a nerve cell. And so, you know, people thought that that was going to be the solution to building new tissues. But you and I, we both have stem cells in our body right now. That's how our skin is constantly replenishing our muscle, right? When you go exercising, stem cells are important there. So we have stem cells in our body, in your gut, right? So your digestion, you've got that layer of tissue that is always replenishing. So we have stem cells and we have stem cells in our bone marrow too. And people thought like, well, if you just have that, you can rebuild everything, but it's not so easy. I would equate it to the cancer field where we thought we needed to just manage those cancer cells, but actually cancer immunotherapies use your immune system to target the cancer, right? So it was the environment that you had to modulate, right? We had it within us in the immune system to fight the cancer, right? And it's the same thing for stem cells. We have the stem cells in us, right? But we need to have the right environment for those stem cells to be able to do what we want them to do and make new tissue. So that's how our perspective has changed over the past 10 years. So I happen to know that you're also working on aging. And I'm amazed that because of all of the research on stem cells, that that hasn't been brought together to make us eternally young, right? Now, we've obviously got the Botox and the fillers (laughs) and head eye and all those kinds of things, but we haven't quite figured that out yet. Tell us on closing what your work is on aging and why you just decided that this was an important part of your work. I'm really excited about aging. And I think one of the places we're going now is trying to understand why the lab research doesn't always work in people, right? And two key important pieces of that are um, the age, right? So most people who are coming in and needing these therapies are a little bit older and sex differences, right? How men and women respond differently. So we're combining those two and understand, trying to understand how the immune system and our ability to repair changes with age and how it's different in men versus women. So I think that's one of our exciting frontiers and it'll help us develop better therapies. Now, was it you who told me that most of this research is done on men and not women? Was it you who told me that? We might've chatted about that a little bit. So it's funny, in, in the lab, you have a lot of the studies that are done in female mice in some fields and then male mice in other fields. And clinical trials, yes, you will have some bias. Thankfully for, you know, women's health, we, (laughs) you know, we have to study it in women. But I I hear from a lot of medical providers that we work with, a lot of advisors that we have on our body board, that that's been one of the reasons that female health has been held back, that a lot of the research that's done is done on men, (laughs) which doesn't make any sense to me. Is it because more men come forward to be in the trials or? That's a great question. And, you know, the immune response, the immune system is very different in men and women. I think there's a preconception that possibly hormones make it more complicated. So the female cycle makes the clinical trial more complicated. 
but it could be a recruitment issue also. So it's definitely something we need to address. But what about being able to design therapy specifically for men and women, right? It might not be that hard. Yeah. And (laughs) your last thoughts on why are we so behind still on female health? Well, I have to say, watching the news recently, though, and all that's going on in our country, the lack in basic understanding of how women function has been astounding, right? Just some of the basics of physiology and women is just clearly, there's, there's an education part of it. And then from the new research development side, definitely funding. Is it a priority for us? Not right now, but I'm hoping as sort of women's buying power increases and also just understanding this is not normal and we can do something to make you feel better, have a better quality of life um, will be fantastic. I mean, the cost of fibroids in 2010 was estimated to be $34 billion. Wow. It's a great market if you just want to look at it from that perspective. Yeah. You know, let me give you my take on this. And the reason I started the body agency is most of the funding comes from men. Most men don't understand how a female body works. They don't understand and don't want to understand periods. They don't want to understand menopause. They only want to understand how it affects them. As in, if their partner is going through menopause and she has low libido, that affects the man. And one of the things I've always said at the body agency is, in order for us to really make a change in filling that important gap in female health is educate boys and men. Because if we can do that and they really have an understanding, the money will start to flow. And I do see it starting to flow. There are some educated men out there, but that's the fundamental problem that we're dealing with right now is educating men and boys. And and it affects your family, right? You want your partner to be healthy and thrive and have a low-risk pregnancy and bring healthy babies into the world and be good wives and partners and mothers. So, you know, female health is so, so important. And you're at the core of it, Jennifer. So thank you so much for all the life-saving work that you do. And I'm really looking forward to working with you more on all of this, on fibroids, on aging, on all the great results that you get every single day out of your work. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for bringing these topics forward and talking about it and working on educating. Well, you know what? I never thought I'd be this excited about talking about fibroids, but it was such (laughs) a massive part of my life. You know, it was a life changing, you know, I could have lost my baby. I could have, you know, she tried to come out with this. I mean, you know, it's awful to think about what could have happened. And, you know, I still deal with the pain of it today. So yeah. It's suffering. It's a lot of suffering. It's a lot of suffering. And, you know, as you know, women, we suffer in silence. We just think, okay, well, that's part of being a woman. You know, we'll just carry on, you know, day to day and put up with the pain. So thanks again, Jennifer. It was really great to have you on the show. And I hope to see you very soon. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body and Soul. Remember, you can find all my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening platform. We are actually partnering up with Vital Voices to get much-needed dignity kits to the refugees in Ukraine. Girls and women do not have access to personal hygiene products that keep them safe and healthy. 
please go to thebodyagency.com to donate a dignity kit today. Be sure also to sign up for our email list at The Body Agency for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotional code PODCAST10 to get a 10% discount. Thank you for listening.